fellow griever, you have found the Leftover Pieces Suicide Lost Conversations podcast, and I am Alyssa, your host. I am with you on this journey because my 21-year-old son, Alex, died by suicide on August 7th of 2016. Since launching this podcast in late 2020, I have followed my heart and expanded the leftover pieces to include books and an online community where I host Zoom support groups every week. It is there in this community that I lead other parents who have lost a child by suicide from survival toward hope and into healing. The website is also a resource hub, a connecting point for all survivors of suicide loss. You can find me, ways to connect with me, and links to everything that I'm doing in the community on my website, theleftoverpieces.com. Know that I'm always open to suggestions and feedback. And if you know someone that I should connect with to be on the podcast, please let me know that as well. So now I invite you to join me for real conversations, handed talk on hard topics surrounding the loss of our loved ones by suicide. I talk to other lost survivors, mental health experts, advocates, and on alternate weeks, I offer shorter solo episodes where I go down the rabbit hole to discuss things that have been on my mind or possibly parts of my journey that I feel would be beneficial to share. Every week, we explore the questions that haunt us, seek the courage to uncover the healing tools within us, and offer the comfort of a community that we all need so very much. It's true that our hearts and lives have been shattered, but come along with me and together let's choose to find meaning and even happiness amid the leftover pieces before us. Welcome. Hello, fellow griever, and today you have reached season five, episode five of the leftover pieces. Suicide Lost Conversations podcast, and I'm Melissa, your host. Today, I am going to share with you a conversation I had not too long ago with a lovely woman named Jessica Timmerman of The Final Salute, LLC. She started The Final Salute to honor the life of her brother, Sergeant First Class Zachary Brown. Zach was active duty army in Germany when he died by suicide on Mother's Day in 2022. Jessica is a married mom of three kids and a military mental health advocate currently residing in Oklahoma. Zachary was Jessica's baby brother. They were each other's only siblings. He was a proud infantryman, a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan, and a devoted dad with a huge heart that made an impact on so many that he knew. Zachary believed in life of service, and Jessica now intends to continue that code going forward in his honor. It was an amazing conversation, and it's my honor to share it with you. In particular, you are going to hear Jessica 
share why her heart is particularly with siblings and suicide loss survivors of the military. Oftentimes, and I know you've probably heard me talk about it before, siblings are called the forgotten mourners or the forgotten grievers because quite often they just seem to slip through the cracks. And one of the examples that Jessica gave me that is not in our conversation is that when her ex-sister-in-law was notified of Zachary's death, they asked if there was anyone in the States that needed to be notified. And she said, absolutely, Zach's sister, and they are extremely close. And they let her know that they would notify her with um, honor to her home. And Jessica says that that never happened. And I only share that because a lot of what you'll hear Jessica and I talk about is optimistic and encouraging about surviving this loss. It's also very real. And Jessica does share the challenges that Zachary was facing in the military, trying to get any mental help um, for his um, depression, as well as how things have been since. And I won't go into a lot of detail, but we do in our conversation. And I will segue into our conversation here in just a moment, but I want to end this introduction with a quote that I found at the bottom of Jessica's email signature. And I think it just gives you an idea of how amazing this young woman is. The quote beneath her signature says, I survived because the fire inside me burned brighter than the fire around me. So without further ado, I will segue to the conversation with this amazing, brave and vulnerable woman who is doing great things in the world in honor of her brother. Welcome. Hi, welcome to the podcast, Jessica. Hi, Melissa. How are you? I'm good. So I know I've already prepared you for the fact that living in Puerto Rico, we might hear rooster in the background. I hope that we don't. But just so my listeners know, if you think you hear that, start counting. Jessica's made a prediction on that. So (laughs) on how many rooster crows we might possibly hear in the background. So anyway, welcome. And I'm so excited to have this conversation with you and be able to share it with all of my listeners, because I think that your story is so poignant and The work that you're doing in the name of your brother is absolutely inspirational and amazing. So I want to take a minute as we start here to do what I always do and ask you if you would share your lost story in your own words, whatever that means to you, Jessica. Sure. So I'm Jessica. I woke up Mother's Day 2022 to a text from my sister-in-law. And my brother and his family, his wife and young son had been living in Germany since 2019, since the army moved them there. And I had responded to my sister-in-law and said, no, I haven't, which was odd. We have about a seven hour time difference and it was the weekend. So he's frequently on the internet. So I had that Facebook messenger time stamp of the last time he had written to me or to anyone. And then the day went on and my sister-in-law starting to get concerned, had a friend go do a welfare check on where he was staying in the barracks. 
And then I kind of went about my day. My daughter had a soccer tournament. I didn't hear anything for a while. And I was, you know, your brain does all sorts of things. So I just tried to not think about it. And I will remember being in like the snowball stand line. I live in Oklahoma. It's very windy and hot for soccer. So I was trying to make my three-year-old comfortable. And I got a call from Germany and it was my sister-in-law's friend who had informed me that my brother had passed away and they found him. Mm. It never gets easy to hear that. And I'm so sorry. And to have not heard from him on Mother's Day was probably, I mean, I know you're not his mother, but as I'm sure you're going to tell everybody, you and your brother were each other's family at that point, correct? Correct. Both of our parents passed young and we had to raise each other. We were two years apart. We were integral in every part of each other's life. So that time he was going through a rough patch and I was hoping that he was getting peace and I was ready for the quiet and the correspondence to stop. But looking back and those messages being all I have now is very haunting, right? Because I wanted peace and now it's like too quiet. Right. Did you have, talk a little bit about your brother's history. Did you have any indication that this was where things would go? (sighs) What a uh, tricky question. I think our brains try to think only a certain person, only a certain family will have this sort of outcome. And it's so not true. He played every sport with a ball. He wrote for the school newspaper. He was in a fraternity. He was very accomplished in the military. He was in E7 at his passing. He did struggle with alcohol. It was his coping mechanism. And sometimes when that took over, He would say things or write us living an ocean apart. He would write messages, but it was something I don't want to blame any, anyone of my family or friends. I just think it was something we would circle back to the next day and be like, Hey, you said this, is there something to that? And he would change the subject. He had a rough last six months. And there were times that me and his wife talked about like, the the military for all the progress they are making the stoicism and the stigma is still there and if you're talking about a career where people's whole lives are wrapped up in that service the idea of saying i have this problem and it might affect my whole life they, they'd rather die with that secret so Kelly and I, we struggled with it all the time when he would say things to either of us. Is this when we finally say as family members we're concerned? Because that is the difference between the civilian world and the military world. If you and I as civilians are worried about a family member, we could take them to the emergency room. Their employer might not even know when they have to call out of work on Monday because they're on a hold. But it's their whole, this their whole military family life. Um, right. And so there's, there, no way, there's no way their commanding officer wouldn't know and things like that because it's the structure of the military. Correct. So, yeah. yes, I look back and there were those times where he would say, just remember how much I love you. And I'd be like, you're moving back in a few months. Why are you saying that you could say this to my face? So, yes, but I don't know. Yeah. Well, that kind of leads me to wanting to ask you a little bit about something that we talked about when we previously chatted, which is. Have you found that there 
you've started to address it. So I know the answer is partially yes, but I want you to go deeper. So I want you to talk about whether there's a deficiency with regards to suicide loss support and or military support for mental health prior to loss. Have you seen a deficiency compared to what you know of the civilian world? Yeah. So if a military person finds out that someone that they are friendly with dies, their first question normally is, was it by suicide? Which just something that happens repeatedly. And then there aren't, again, because of the stigma, there aren't necessarily things they can do about it. For instance, one one of the neighbors in Germany that went and checked on my sister-in-law and nephew and was very helpful in checking in, he himself died by suicide nine months later and he was a medic. And so I just think there are so many deficiencies. They have these programs in place, but they have such human limitations. They have this ask care escort. But then if people don't follow the protocols, no matter their intent, I do think the people over my brother did respect his service, but I just don't think they knew to act with urgency. I don't know if I answered your question. I'm sorry. No, I think you did. I was just wanting to have you say that again, because you said the, and I assume it's, I think it's the army that has that program, the ACE program, Ask Care Escort. What Break that down, Ask Care Escort. What do those things mean? Because I do hear you saying the program's in place and nobody can see me doing the air quotes. So the program is in place, but with huge human error and deficiency allowances, right? So we see that in, I think, in other places in the world too, where Well, I felt like Alex's college did a little bit of that. They put some programs in place after, now his were after there was multiple suicides at his college, but they put in what programs that feel like they're almost more CYA for the entity, the organization, or in this case, the the branch of the military, then they are truly about creating the help that needs to be had. It almost becomes an answer to, oh, now we got to put together some sort of program. So talk about Ask Care Escort. What's it supposed to be? What is it? So really, if we're talking about a system that's a family, I air quoted, and people are checking in on each other, those are your brothers and sisters in arms. So if you see them struggling, if they are showing up to work smelling like alcohol, you should say, you should check in. You should ask. So you should ask. That's the ask part, right? Correct. And then you should take that a step further. And it's one thing to address that someone has a problem, but to you, if I always believe that one of the solutions has to be in connection, right? So people need to believe that people honestly care about them because you and I know like the problems with suicide are with individuals feeling like they don't belong or that they're burdensome. So So to me, the care means to connect like, Hey, I see you're having a hard time. Like you can offer resources. You can try to say this happens during the workday. You can invite them over to have a further conversation. And during that conversation, if you ask direct pointed questions, like, are you thinking of harming yourself? Do Are you feeling hopeless? And with those answers, you are supposed to escort immediately to a commander, to someone that can get that hero to safety. 
in in our civilian world, right, a provider would call 911 and that would be a police escort because, but I do believe in my brother's case, his, the people over him knew and they just kept deferring care. But if you really feel like you're holding on to the last string of hope and you're told, well, maybe we'll help you in three weeks, that doesn't really give you any more hope. In my brother's specific case, one of his very best friends in Germany, they military is a really small world. So often these, these people see each other at different bases. And he was very good friends with this fellow. They would have like cookouts, bonfires all the time. And my brother's friend noticed it because he had a sibling pass this way. My brother's friend noticed it six weeks, two months before. And they had different chains of command. They had different jobs in the army. So my brother's friend told my brother's boss and he was very concerned. He said, this is what I noticed. And all they said was we're handling it. And so it didn't make my brother's friend feel very great. And I think after my brother's pass, after Zach's passing, this gentleman put in a complaint specifically against a higher up for not escorting to services, but it's hard when people do things after the effect. If we think each suicide loss affects 135 people, then anytime anyone even hears of stuff, we should just be pouring support into people. But how do we do that? Right. It becomes a very, like you said, it becomes a problem with a lot of room for human error because sometimes the error is just who are the people? Where do they come from? How do you train them? How do you, all the things? But it sounds like like a lot of programs that are put into place, the intentions are good, but the follow through isn't always what it should be. It sounds like there's a real gap in that care part, right? Because if you can't connect, ask and escort, then you don't have anything, right? Nobody's getting escorted because that middle step's being and nobody's going beyond asking. Yeah, somebody may say, hey, how are you doing today? And someone may answer. But if they don't, if there's nothing to follow through to that care piece, then you can't connect to the escort piece, which is the life-saving piece. So like a lot of like a lot of programs that we know about out there, there's just there's just not enough resource to make them be what they need to be, right? And we also know and you talked about this a little bit and knowing what I do on a limited basis about the military world and that the stigma is still so very real. Then you're also fighting the whole toxic leadership piece where there is a lot of leadership in the military that's still going to kind of have the bucket up buttercup type of attitude of, yeah, that's we're not going there. That's not an option. We're not getting a mental health thing right now or whatever, because they still just stigmatize mental health so much. Correct. Correct. Yeah. I and always think of that like a football locker room. Say you have a 18 year old kid in the same as a 46 year old Tom Brady. You have very different values just by the errors you grew up in, in your life experiences. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I, I would think that we all know just based on, I don't know, history, knowing things, rank, whatever, that most of the senior ranking in the military are older people. And I'm not saying they're necessarily all seniors ready to retire, but they're probably, I mean, I'm 55. So they're probably my age and up, which means there is a generational gap between them and the people they're over that they're in command of. So, and there is 
a generational stigma, my generation and up the people now that are retired and older, that suicide was grossly misunderstood and therefore still is by many people that are of a certain generation. So that doesn't help either because they came through their military ranks with that reverse care attitude and so much as a part of who they are. I don't know how you undo some of that, right? It's going to come down to, you and I talked briefly about, or maybe you said something very briefly to me the other day that was, we have to start young. I say that all the time. I'm like, mental health initiatives going forward in our future just have to start when the kids are little. They start in elementary, they start on an age-appropriate level, they start to learn to be at what I say, which is advocates for themselves in their own mental health journey without any stigma, without any shame, because it's part of what they learn growing up. The same as you learn, if your shoulder hurts, you got to tell your mom so you can go to the doctor. If you're not thinking in a way that feels normal or typical to you, you need to tell somebody I'm feeling this way, or I'm too tired, or I'm too sad, or whatever the words are, especially and we're going to have to start this younger, which means we're still a generation or two away from seeing massive change, I think. I do think at some point we're going to see the curve, I hope so, go the other direction. Me but too. Not, but, but it's only going to happen if if people like us that are being affected by it continue to kind of stand up on our little milk crate and say, I need you to listen. We're We're going to keep saying these things that are hard to hear because that's how change is really going to happen. I always think of it like sex ed too, right? In the fifth grade class where they sit everyone. And like, again, like you said, age appropriate, but I think I might be wrong, but by fifth grade also kids know what suicide is, whether we as adults have given them the right language or they've heard it peers maybe falsely, right? Right. They're going to know regardless. So do we give them the tools to deal with it or we do we do what we have been traditionally doing, which is just we're not going to talk about that because if we talk about it, it's going to happen. And I love that you drew that comparison to sex ed because I've done that exact same thing before where I've said we could stand on a pulpit as a parent or a teacher all day long and say, we're not talking about sex because then my kid's going to have sex too soon. I'm not handing out condoms because then my kid's going to have sex. You and I both know that young people who are of a sexual awakening age are going to figure out what sex is, whether we want them to or not. So do we give them the tools so that they know how to protect themselves and be safe and do all the things? Or do we just let them sneak off like kids have been doing ever since man existed, right? Right. So it's the same thing. Do we talk about, because some people want to say, why is this so prevalent now? Why is this happening now? Why, what's wrong with, what's wrong with everybody now? Well, in a nutshell, and this is way oversimplification and overgeneralization, we live in a very different society than we've ever lived in before. We live in a bigger population than we ever have before. But to oversimplify it, we lived in more stress and anxiety-inducing times than we have ever lived in our world. And we're not, and, and as a human being, as a brain, as a biological system, we haven't grown to accommodate the growth of our technology and our world around us and all of the things. We still don't process things much differently than we did several decades ago when that stuff wasn't a thing, when nobody was holding a supercomputer in their hand every day, and including kids, middle school and high school, are all holding instant access to everything they never should see in an right. instant 
all the time. And that's small, right? We could get into video games. We could get into sports injuries because people play more aggressive sports. And they, there's all the things. We live in a much different world than we did even when I was way different than I was growing up. I was talking about that to a mom my age the other night. How I went through my entire childhood, high school, college, adulthood, and other than a great uncle who I never knew was my grandfather's brother who had died by suicide, but that language was never used. He was a drunk, according to the family, and he they were descriptive about what he did, but it never had the word suicide, and it never stuck with me that I had a family member that had died by, and I didn't know him. He was a lot right. older, obviously. But other than that, who I never tied to suicide in my head because of how the family talked about it and stigmatized it. I had never known anybody that died by suicide. Like it just wasn't something. And I would venture to say that almost no kid in public school in today's world will go through high school and not say they've known of someone, even if it wasn't their friend, they've known someone in their school that's died by suicide. And that's high school. And that's terrifying. That's not even me talking about college or the work world. That's me talking about and I dare to say junior high, middle school, too, when I was 14. Suicide wouldn't have entered my mind. So we do now live in a very different world. Suicide is now a possibility that people think about that just wasn't a possibility before. So if we don't stand up and talk about mental health and address it and give people resources that are meaningful and places to go and start to break down those walls, we won't ever make any progress. And unfortunately, those of us that have lived through this are the ones that are in the position to say something has to change. I 100% agree. Now, will you tell me a little bit, and it's it's backtracking a little bit, but yet it's not because it's still your daily reality. What would you say has been the biggest challenge for you that's changed or shifted since losing Zach as a sibling? Oh, man. I know. How do you put one thing? It doesn't have to really be just one. No, thing. I know. You think when something awful and traumatic happens, it's one thing, right? Just one thing shifted and you still have all these other things. But to me, it's like one person has been removed from living in this plane and it's changed everything. Everything has changed. Like I think we said earlier, my parents have both passed and Zach was my sense of home. We really hadn't lived in the same town since I graduated high school at 18 and he was 16. But it, we would always just make everything about, which also somebody like that's like the life of the party is like a good and a bad. So anytime he'd come to town, it was just such an occasion. I just have lost my sense of home. I, I get worried about my memory. He was the one that could back up my stories and be like, Oh yeah, that really did happen. Now I just don't have, I don't have like that person anymore. The person I did my whole life with. I actually, before we got on this call, I was trying to do the math. I'm almost exactly two years older than my brother, but 1984 was a leap year. So I did the math and there were 720 days I that I didn't live before earth that I lived without him being born. And right now we're at like 611. So then I had to figure out at what day that passes to. And so that's in May. And it's just all these like X's on a calendar now that I have to be mindful of how I spend those times and, you know, how I take care of myself. And 
it, it really has changed everything. I pride myself and it's probably not a, a therapist would say it's not a good pride, but I'm very good at controlling my emotions, adapting to surroundings. And now I have no idea what song will come on the radio and I'll cry or silly things. Right. Um, things you have no idea are coming. Smells, sights, a sound. I mean, things that, that in there's there, even now, yesterday was seven and a half years. So even now, I will literally, it's not as often, but I will get completely caught off guard and just find tears running down my face until we become more connected to them in spirit. We don't always realize too where those nudges are going to come from them now, right? Because I believe that's some of that as well. Let's shift for a minute and because we're already talking about you as a sister, as a sibling and time passage and mile markers and you're the older sister, so you're not going to have to ever experience you out aging him like my younger son did for his sibling, but you are going to have to experience the gap getting wider and wider. Like you said, he's always been almost exactly two years younger than you. And so doing the math for that means you're already starting to think about the fact that at some point that two-year gap between you is now going to get bigger and bigger, right? He's going to be at that place. And that's a tricky thing to navigate. Um, And you're still very early in your grief, But siblings are often called the forgotten mourners because there's lots of things about this dynamic. So I'm curious because a lot of siblings will say, the first thing people say to me is, how is your mom doing? So people might have said, how's everybody holding up? And they somehow look to you like, you're fine. You tell me how everybody else is. How did you experience that, especially since your parents are gone and you didn't have that piece of how are your folks? You're right. And it's not like I'm through this. I will. Right grieve and be it healing my whole life. Right. But it, it comes up in the, if people do know that my brother passed, they'll be like, well, how are your parents handling it? And then I, I'm like, oh, actually they're departed as well. And then certain people you just see like their eyes glaze over and I'm like, it's okay. But you do bring up a good thing about my healing and I'm trying to be better about it now. I've been so obsessed with making everyone else around me feel okay with my loss, which is so foreign to me. And I've had panic attacks or I ended up in the ER with pneumonia over it, this trying to keep this image of I have it together. And not that I blame the military on this, but I even had to, TAPS was a good organization. They gave me a peer sibling counselor for a year who would call me once a month and check on me. But I had to seek that out myself. I do think all grievers sometimes have to be in charge of their own healing, which sucks because if you get in a car crash, you don't have to advocate for that. And I mean, I had to even Google my my sister-in-law is labeled a gold star spouse. And I had to Google, like, can I say I'm a gold star sibling? Is that a thing? It just, yeah, you feel... Either people forget about you or people are terrified because your loss, or in my case, like your amount of losses are terrifying. It's almost like the, if I talk to her too much about this, will this happen to me? It can be very lonely because either people don't, yeah. So what did you, so you talked about getting connected with TAPS, although you reached out and said, I need some support and they provided it. And I know a little bit about TAPS through Hicks Strong. Um, and I know that their daughter has been involved in TAPS also. Their daughter also is one of the co-facilitators of the sibling group I now have. So she brings that element to it. But they're five years in and she's just now feeling like 
I've got to do more, right? Because I'm not getting enough. She's not getting enough support. And she knows other siblings are not as well. Same, my, my son Parker facilitates that group. But I don't know a lot more about TAPS, but knowing that you had to seek it out, what else did you do or have you done? Because you're right, you have to advocate for your own, but then take it a step further. You touched base on something that you didn't that you didn't realize is relevant to me lately. Several of the moms in my community have talked about how not only do they have to seek their own care and healing, but then you become the responsible person in your community as it would be, whatever your community is made up of in, in your relationship world, your circle. You become the one that then has to educate everybody on not only how to te- treat you, but how to talk about suicide, how to deal with grief, how to talk. About- and that's a lot of a burden to carry. You're already the one grieving that needs the support. And then you have to also be the educator and advocate at the same time. Right. I really try to uh, still not even two years into this, but my goal lately, I'm trying to meld the two worlds so that I can get help and get that out all the time. I just think we have a lot of examples in society of people that have battled that same struggle, getting help they need, and then speaking out about the injustice of it. So I don't have the answer, but I just... I think the last time you and I spoke, it really rung true to me. There was, I, time is such a funny non thing, but for a while, I really, uh, my brother was my best friend and I just miss him so much. And every day I kept, I just like, am I going to get through this? Will I know I'm sinking? And I really, it's motivated me almost like angered me to like want to prove people wrong. Like I am going to get through this and then I will help other people because I, I, there, there were days where you're like, I don't know, this Mm -hmm. could be too much. I try to get ahead of my story as much as possible because I, if I can be transparent and honest, then a, it protects me, right? People aren't coming back and asking me more questions if I put it out there. But it it's really tricky and it breaks my heart for all the fellow people like you and I. Right. But you bring up a good point, which is the whole thing that we can't do this alone. Because I I say, I even heard Anderson Cooper say it today on the second to last episode of his second season of his podcast, All There Is, which is phenomenal. I will plug that all day long. I don't care. I'm not getting any kickback. <laughs> CNN does not have me on their kickback payroll, but it's an amazing <laughs> podcast. And he today said something almost verbatim of a statement I've had on my website for quite a while now. So, and he didn't take it from me, but I didn't take it from him either. But it was just what you and I are talking about, which is you can't do this alone. Like this is, he said something almost akin to what my phrase is, which is this may be lonely, but you don't have to do it alone. Right. And I went so far to say to mom last night, I will even say you should not do this alone because what you just alluded to, I've said more than once, if anything in my life ever has had the capability of taking me down with it, it was this loss. Yeah, And maybe some moments in my life still is. The moments are briefer and fewer and far between, but I still have moments every year where I go, can I really carry this the rest of my life? Right? Right. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of conscious effort. And for me, it takes being able to help light the path for other people. Now I'm getting to a different place and where I'm at in my grief growth journey, 
but it hasn't taken away any of the elements that were there. It's softened them. It's made me more accustomed to them. It's given me a lot more tools to weather the storms when they show up. Right. But it doesn't make the storms not show up. Right. 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 We can build a boat. We can start with a little homemade raft and then we can get a dinghy and then we can get a yacht, but the storm's still coming. Right. And there's still, there's always going to be an intrinsic, I'll call it emotional danger with that. Right. So, yeah. You go right ahead. Military loss. Thinking of my brother, the military is so financially invested when people sign up boot camp and everything. But the thing I just, again, you and I can work in our communities or work with people like us. But I mean, if you really want to, they need to be just as invested in mental health. They need to meet these people when they're in ROTC in high school and say, hey, bad things are going to happen. What's your plan when they do? Or by the time you're in high school, you've had some sort of traumatic experience for your life experiences, Mm -hmm. right? And so in the past, when what did you draw on in strengths and bad times? Or what should we who care about you pay attention to? Like, you saying before about bad days, I noticed my most unhealthy days, the weather's bad, you can't get outside, it's great. And it's like a friend invites you over, it's the last thing you want to do, right? You want to put on comfy PJs and drink wine and whatever. But that's like the most unhealthy thing to Watch do. Watch a sad when movie I- and cry all day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But in those, like the conscious effort thing you said, it's in those times that you should do the uncomfortable thing, get out, connect with people that care about you, because that's what's going to get you to the next phase. Yeah, I agree. And that doesn't mean when you have that day that you give into that you beat yourself up over it. Right. You say, I did that. And now, okay, that's behind me. I did that. And I even advocate for we all need a few days like that. But it's when it becomes repetitive and pattern and your only way of coping with it that you're like, okay, this has become a problem because I think I've worn this for 10 days or, or whatever. That's when you need to stop and check yourself a little bit. But I 100% agree with you that it is doing what's uncomfortable and hard. So Jessica, talk to me just a little bit, if you would, about, I know you are a death doula with advanced death doula certifications. And we didn't talk a lot about this before, which is why I kind of like to talk about it organically right now. I'm not even sure. And so I'm anticipating your answer, whether you became a death doula prior to losing Zach or after. Explain what a death doula is and then talk about that a little bit. I'm, it's very interesting to me that you chose that path, what it is and why you chose to do that. Okay. So if people hear death doula, if people have heard the word doula, they think about it in birth, right? Mm-hmm. A person that's not, could be medical trained, but doesn't have to be, that's just support to the family, to the baby. Again, back to our piece earlier people that help you design a plan for how you like things to go, even if things go off track. There are people out there that do this work. There's a lot of organization. There's not like one concise database and it's kind of not a highly regulated thing, which gives a lot of people different liberties to do with what they want with it. So my whole thing that I started looking back at my notes and this was like November. So it must've been about six months after my brother passed. And I was just looking for a way to take my pain and turn it into purpose. And I just thought with the life experiences I had, if they could be benefits to other people 
grieving is lonely. And I just thought that would be a really beautiful thing to do. So then, yes, I did take some online certifications. I became friends with a woman veteran who is a death doula herself and a speaker. And she alluded to something you just said, how you thought this would be something you could be interested in, but not with all the other things going on. So the death doula I befriended after a few conversations, she's like, you're going to have to make the choice. Do you want to be an aide and advocate at the funeral homes for these families grieving, helping them plan their legacy projects for their military? Or would you rather be an educator and get out there and talk? And so it's something I've waffled between. And I really would be open if there's anyone in my community or something that somebody with my experiences could be a benefit to, I would be open in helping them. Death doulas kind of exist in lots of different ways. Some people are there when someone is actively dying. Medical staffs are so busy, they're not going to look at a chart and say, hey, grandpa loves 1950s show tunes and he wants that right. plane as he transitions. They're worried about the medication. They're worried about the medical care. Right. So who's there for like your spiritual or is like, or who's there to give families reprieve if your husband has Alzheimer's and you're by his bed all day and you need to get groceries or take a walk in the sun. So death doulas can offer some incredible benefits to families that are dying, grieving. So I was thinking of existing in the space of after a suicide loss, funeral planning, we've all been there and people start throwing numbers at you and packages and talking about logistics and as you're going through the worst day of your life. So and you're you can, wondering, and you're wondering, how do I write the obituary? Do I say it was suicide? Don't I? Do, all right. the different things that comes up. And suicide is so complicated because you already have a traumatic loss and then you add the the confusion of suicide to it and it is complicated and it made all the difference to me to sit across from the very first mom and looked her in the eyes who had experienced a suicide loss and it was something that transcended any comprehension when our eyes locked and I knew she understood. Right. And so that experience of meeting Tracy for the first time was what made me think if I could do that for somebody at their time and be that person to help them try to navigate, that leads me to where you currently are and and what are you currently thinking of doing in honor of Zach and in order to educate and promote ideas that are stigma resistant and things like that. What are you looking at at doing now? So you alluded to it. I just kind of think my journey is a little like kismet or their breadcrumbs. And I try to follow that. If people come to ask me to talk, I make myself available to that. And the questions after I'm redoing my website now to have blogs and public speaking type things. I, yeah. So you're letting it unfold a little bit. I always talk about how the podcast was my starting point. And that was it. That was all I had in my mind at the time I knew I needed to create the podcast that I couldn't find. Okay. So I had found a way to connect with healing material because I couldn't take in, I had all these stacks of books compiling, whether they were ones I bought or other people gave me, and I couldn't focus long enough to take them in. So I turned to audiobooks and podcasts. I had not been a podcast listener previous. And so when I decided to start the podcast that I needed, knowing surely somebody else besides me needed it, I didn't have any other plan than that. <laughs> my my leftover pieces world and community as it exists now 
wasn't a thought in my mind because you and I both know that you don't have a tragic loss of your child in my case, a brother in your case, and go, oh, I think I'll start a business now. (laughs) That's just not what you, I mean, my heart at some point became, I want to help other people not feel as lonely as I felt. I want to help create or connect people with other resources that have to be out there. Like, I knew I wasn't going to go out and create the whole wheel. I knew that there was other people already making spokes and that we just had to put them together to make a wheel. And so I thought it may be small. It may be nothing. It may help one person and that will be fine was what I thought. And so the only thing I'm doing now is encouraging you to follow the breadcrumbs in your heart and to keep your brother at the center of it. And it will unfold exactly how it's supposed to, ma'am. And you don't forget this connection or any other one that you made because we're here to lock arms with you and make this journey together. So anything I can do to help you in the future, I'm happy to do that as well. Because I think what you're doing is brave and vulnerable and noble, and you didn't want to do any of it. (laughs) You're not doing it for those reasons. You're doing it because it's what you feel led to do from the love that you had for your brother. And I would like, as we start to wrap things up for you to tell me what your biggest hope in becoming an author, a speaker, an advocate, whatever ends up unfolding in your path would be, would be for you. What would be your biggest hope for that? Oh, I just felt like you were going to ask this and I had this really great answer and now it's not there. It's hard in this heart work, right? I know the little things matter, the ripple effect. We have no idea who will hear our conversation and what sort of impact they can have. And at the end of the day, that's enough. That's more than enough, right? We got out of bed, we put on mascara, we did that. And then it ran off of our face when right. we cried for the 10th time. Yeah. Right. That's why right. I buy waterproof mascara. I'm just saying. Oh. Just how your voice is inspiring me. I want to inspire the doers. I just want people to know hope is out there. I Somebody had coined the phrase hope dealer. And I just love that idea because sometimes we can get so obsessed with like, what am I doing with my time? Does it matter? And it just, I'm trying to let that go and just be as authentic as Zach was and hope we all of us people doing all this hard work can integrate our systems and really start making a dent on that 22 a day of military and veterans they think are passing this way. So my greatest hope is that all of these, (laughs) we live in a utopia and we have new problems, but yeah, it just, I want people to not feel alone. I think that we should, in the world that we live in of suicide loss, reframe the hope dealer to being a hope gardener. I think we're planting seeds and cultivating them. And that just came to me today. I wish I could say, oh, I thought of that. And it's this great idea I have. It came to me as you're talking because I hear hope dealer a lot, too. I've actually been a part of a community where they talk about being hope dealers. And I've always just the dealer part just sits a little weird with me as you're talking and you talked about planting. I went, we're hope gardeners. We're hope tenders. We're tending to the seeds of hope, giving it the energy through the community to grow into something that matters. So let's just stick with something like that because it sounds better than being a dealer. Like I definitely, want <laughs> right. I to do good um, in the world and not right inflict. But planting seeds of hope, you're exactly right. It's it can be thankless work, meaning 
you're not out there getting told all the time, thank you. We're doing it from our heart. And I don't want to be. It's I'm doing it from my heart and just knowing that I'm planting seeds that in many ways I will never have any idea how it could affect where the ripple effect may be. But just think of every time you drop something tiny into the water, it always ripples out, right? And every ripple is going to be unique. And it's not going to be, you could drop the same stone at the in, in the same size in the same spot and the ripple will not be the same. We just never know what the seed's going to grow into. And so it's up to us to just plant them, to plant them lovingly and caringly, knowing that the sunlight and the water and the love will take care of it from there. And I have no doubt that your path is going to unfold for you in a way that that makes sense to you. But keep planting those seeds because they're so important. I know I asked you to plan to share a favorite thing about Zach, and that's what I would like you to end with because I want you to share your very favorite thing or one of your couple of your favorite things about Zach. It's sometimes hard to nail down one, right? People's like, what's your favorite thing about your son? I'm like, well, do you have a minute? But what's your favorite thing about Zach? And if another sibling was listening today and they were newer in their grief than you, what would you want to say to them? Sure. My brother, Zach, was this larger than life personality. I was probably, he was shorter than me until maybe he was a junior in high school. And then all of a sudden he's six, four, and then he would call me his little sister, but he had a way good and bad of never being small in a space. He was never afraid. He had an opinion. You never knew what was going to come out of his mouth. I mean, and it was so endearing because he was himself. And one of my favorite things, like, as you said, when we lose a loved one, our memories are kind of on a ticker. And I've just gotten the biggest blessing when people from his squadron or people have reached out what he's meant to him. He really was a guy that would give people the shirt off his back. He just had the biggest heart. So with me tearing up and I, I have, I don't want to say I've been fortunate to befriend other sisters on my journey. I have made friends that are in the same boat as me and they often look to me to advice. And I say, well, I'm on the same boat as you, but I'll sit with you in it. It's hard. You brought up the sibling thing. And I think there's even a level past siblings, friends. There are so many people affected by these losses, these disenfranchised grievers. And I just want to give the most love in the world to them because you're going to have good days. You're going to have bad days. Your brain is going to tell you to judge your grief or compare it to other people's. And it's not fair. I just would tell everyone to cut yourself some slack, give yourself some grace. You'll have bad days. Don't shame yourself to have more and just be very kind to yourself because uh, our whole life, we're going to have to answer, oh, do you have siblings? And then you play the mind game. Do I tell them a story that makes their life easier? Do I tell the real story here? So my love is just to anyone hearing this. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for that and everything that you said. Thank you. I was fighting back the tears there. It it just never gets easier to hear. It never gets easier to take in. And my heart is just with you. And I am sad for you. And I am proud of you. And I appreciate this conversation so very much, Jessica. Thank you, Melissa. For Tell having everybody me. how to find you. Sure. So my business page is the Final Salute LLC. I'm, I don't make any money doing this. Just an author in Fort Worth had the 
had the final salute and kismetly her brother passed away, not by suicide, but the same month and year that my brother was born. So she supports me in this journey. We've talked. So you can find me at the final salute LLC.com. My website will be under construction until about the end of April. And my email is the final salute LLC at Gmail. I also have an Instagram and Facebook page and any person that someone like me could help with, I love to do it. So I will link all of those in the show notes. My listeners know I have a decent amount of show notes and I will put all your links in there so they can find you. They can always find you. When your website is ready, I will happily add you on my resource page right there with Hicks Strong because there's unfortunately just way too many people that need to connect and like you said, find the other people that, that they can lean on and lean back and all of the things. So I will do that. And I know you're going to do great work in Zach's name. I wish you didn't have to, but I know you're going to. And thank you so much, Jessica. Thank you. Talk soon. Grievers, it is my hope that from today, you will take that which serves you and simply leave the rest. I would love to connect with you. And the best way to do that is to start out on my website where the first thing you'll find is a video recorded message from me. And then from there, you can find everything I offer, the online Zoom support groups, the books I've written, ways to connect for the podcast, and an entire resource library assembled to help all suicide loss grievers find the resources that they need to help them along their healing journey. Please go to theleftoverpieces.com. From there, I hope that we can connect and I hope that you too can discover that we truly are better together. If anything that you've heard in today's episode resonates with you, I would ask that you please subscribe to get notified every week of my new episodes and then take a moment to rate and review me on Apple Podcasts so that more grievers like us can find this podcast and this community. It is from my own experience of finding myself sitting amid the leftover pieces of my own shattered heart that I can tell you that while it seems impossible in the early days, it is possible to put those pieces back together and be okay again. And every week, we'll be right here, providing more comfort, hope, and community. So until next week, I'll sign off today with some words from one of my Alex's favorites, Peter Pan. Never say goodbye, because goodbye means going away, and going away means forgetting. Grievers, no one here is forgetting. Talk soon.